You're listening to the Voice of Astronomy, AFM Radio. On Friday, July 8th, AFM Radio and the team from Talking Space broadcast the final launch of the Space Shuttle Atlantis and the very last launch of a NASA shuttle. This is a rebroadcast of that live historic event. This is a live broadcast with a team of Talking Space on the Voice of Astronomy, Astronomy FM. One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. This is an AFM radio mission special event, the last launch of the space shuttle program, 30 years, and today the launch of the shuttle Atlantis. We have our own team of crack reporters down in Cape Kennedy, the team from Crotaki Space, one of our favorite syndicated programs. So without further ado, let's introduce the team. Hey guys, good morning. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody who's listening on Astronomy FM. We thank you for joining us. We are currently reporting live from the Kennedy Space Center at the press site here in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The weather is currently 80 degrees. It's 86, muggy, and a little bit cloudy over here. And we are approaching, coming up, the T-minus, uh, we are approaching one of the holds coming up in the clock. But for right now, everything is on track for a launch. Technical-wise, everything is okay. However, weather has been the only concern. And the deal with the weather is that right now it is 30% chance of weather allowing launch here at the Cape due to possible low cloud cover over the uh, the actual landing strip, the shuttle landing facility. And as well as that, there is also a concern about possible lightning and other storms within a 20 nautical mile radius of the pad. So uh, this mission is the 135th Space Shuttle mission. It's aboard Space Shuttle Atlantis, and it is the final scheduled flight of the Space Shuttle program. And... Uh, Let's get a little update here from the team on what's been going on, because uh, there were a couple of glitches the other night, but we're doing all right now. So let's get an update on what's going on over here on the mission. Well, we have a CJ Stukro astronaut in a T-38 flying over the shuttle landing facility, and I think it's going to be kind of touch and go and up to the last second that they can probably get the launch off. Um, but he is flying uh, the, the landing passes in case if the shuttle does need to do an abort and return to the landing facility currently and reporting to the mission managers right now. Thank you very much, Gina Hurley. By the way, we're also joined, besides Gina Hurley, we're also joined here by Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Of course, I say that every time I've been to Kennedy Space Center the last uh, six months to a year. It's been a real treat to, uh, to see how NASA operates. The folks that are here, both the Public Affairs Office and 
certainly the uh, the managers, the, the mission team, technicians, and it's great to be a part of it from our perspective here at the press site. Great to have you with us, and thank you for engineering the show today with our uh, levels and everything, so we appreciate that. And also joining us uh, is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. How are you doing today? It's uh, an exciting day for a launch. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll uh, get this thing off. It is. As we speak, the wind is just slightly kicking up here. However, wind is not a current uh, constraint for launch. It has to be very high sustained winds. I believe it's about 40 knots for it to cause any problems. So right now, everything else technically is looking fine. The other night, there were a couple of just minor issues that occurred on the pad that they worked. Uh, one of them was a bad fire extinguisher, which set off an alarm, which delayed them a little bit on the 115-foot level of the pad. And that has since been replaced and is now fully operational without any problems. And there was another very bizarre instance that occurred uh, the other night as well. And it involved, uh, it's basically pad chillers. And there are three main pad chillers that are used uh, to have redundancy just in case anything happens. And so with those pad chillers, all three of them at one point were offline and had failed. There's a fourth backup, but... All three of them had failed. Since then, they need a minimum of one of them to fly. And uh, so far, two of the three, as of yesterday, are working perfectly. So those are the only major technical glitches that occurred. But there was one that did occur a couple weeks back that we talked about on our normal show. And uh, does anybody want to take that, or do you want me to take it? And that was... All right, I'll take that. Uh, that was something that occurred with one of the valves on main engine number three, one of the fuel valves. They were taking a look at it, and it gave them some bad numbers, and they took a look at it, and it was leaky. So what they did was they took it out, they replaced it, and they put in a new one at the pad. And with the new one, it should work. They did a test on it where they said that if it survives this test, then there should not be any problems with it. And it passed the test with flying colors. So as of right now, it is currently working perfectly as the shuttle is filled with fuel, which right now, early this morning, the shuttle was filled with fuel and is currently on the pad, and Gene, you were tweeting out a little bit about the uh, the tanking, so. Yeah, first they went, uh, sorry, thank you, first, uh, the uh, uh, tanking went very, very well indeed. Uh, it started about uh, two minutes after two o'clock uh, in the morning, uh, Eastern Daylight Time, and ended at about uh, 5 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time with really, really no, no difficulties. Everything went uh, very, very smooth, and indeed, uh, they reported that the uh, the new valve that you were talking about, sorry, that replaced was in, what tested rock solid. So there's no uh, concern there at all. That's good to know. That began at 2.01 this morning and ended around 5 this morning as well, right? That's correct. All right. So what they'll do now is they will keep it in a steady replenish of the two fuels, which are the liquid hydrogen and the liquid oxygen, which are currently inside the large orange tank, which is on the shuttle, which is the external fuel tank, and that has all their liquid fuel in it. And so uh, that they will continually top off until just before launch when they will remove the beanie cap, which is a part on top of the actual external tank that helps fill it. So once that moves away, they'll stop with the filling. But for now, uh, they'll keep it at a constant replenish, so that way it's good when it comes to launch. Yeah, the interesting thing, Sawyer, about the external tank, it looks kind of simple, but the thing actually has about 481,450 parts. In fact, if uh, all the weld joints on the external tank were laid out in a straight line, they'd probably stretch more than about a half a mile. So, you know, think about that for a minute. Wow, they're not kidding when they say that the shuttle is the most complex machine ever built with so many pieces working together at the same time. 
Indeed, indeed, and that is a you know again a testament to the uh, team that goes ahead and makes sure that these vehicles are healthy before would they go fly. Yeah, which is important to know because the teams lately nobody gives the team a lot of credit. The people behind the scenes that actually go out to the pad and you know do all the dirty work, whether it be taking it out, working on the vehicle, and those people are really what this has been about. And it's great to actually honor them. It's sad that we have to do it on the final mission, but it's great to honor them. Indeed, Sawyer, and it's glad that uh, they're finally getting their uh, their bow even though that uh, this is indeed the last flight of the, uh, of the program. This is, in fact, the final flight of the Space Shuttle program, the 135th Space Shuttle flight. And uh, this mission is very rare because since uh, a Challenger mission, I believe it was in 1983, there has not been a crew of four people. And uh, while we're here, can we go a little bit over some of the crew members? Gina, you want to take that? Yeah, certainly. Um, our commander is Christopher Fergan. He's a U.S. Navy captain. And um, he's got uh, quite a bit of NASA experience. Um, he has, uh, he's, he's in command of the crew. Uh, he has flown on 115, which was also Atlantis in 2006. And he has flown Endeavour, STS-126. Endeavour was a night launch that I was able to witness some years ago in November of 08. So, um... He's flown two different orbiters, but he's back in the helm in Atlantis today. Our pilot, Douglas Hurley, uh, his NASA experience is STS-127. It was an assembly mission on Endeavour. Uh, that was July of 2009. Um, Ferguson has also flown with Mission Specialist 1 before, Sandy Magnus, because she has been on the Endeavour flight with him that launched in November 08, STS-126. And she was on STS-112, also Atlantis, in the past. Um, and rounding out the crew is Rex Walhelm, a U.S. Uh, Air Force colonel. And his flight experience has been STS-110, which was also Atlantis, and STS-122, Atlantis as well, in uh, 2002 and 2008, respectively. So they are an experienced crew, probably selected... Um, for their only, they only had nine months to train, and since they were all pretty recent flyers, which was probably lended a hand to NASA making the decision to select them. Thank you, and a reminder, you are listening to live launch coverage from the team of Talking Space on Astronomy FM of the final flight of the Space Shuttle program, and that is the STS-135 mission with the Space Shuttle Atlantis. The noise you're hearing in the background is a NASA tweet-up event that is going on, so if you hear anything else, that's people cheering there. Also, you will hear in the background the NASA mission audio, which is going on in the background. Uh, the person that you'll hear commentating up until the shuttle clears the tower will be George Diller. He is the NASA Public Affairs Officer for this mission. May not be as exciting of a voice as us, but uh, <laughs> he still gets the job done. He's, he's been great with this. He's done uh, a bunch of missions. Now, um, we talked a little bit about the external tank. Now, uh, there's something very interesting with these uh, solid rocket boosters. What they do is they actually take the parts of the solid rocket boosters from different missions. Solid rocket boosters are assembled by ATK, formerly Morton Thiokol, and uh, on both boosters there are segments taken from specific missions. And uh, this one has some interesting things on it. Gene, you pointed out a couple of these, if you want to point them out to the audience as well. Yeah, we were, we were looking over a, uh, 
uh, an ATK provided uh, fact sheet here on this particular mission. Uh, ATK is the prime contractor for the solid rocket boosters. Uh, the, some of these segments that are on the SRBs have flown on some very interesting missions. One segment, the aft dome segment, flew on the return to flight mission, STS-114. Uh, one of the other segments flew on uh, the ill-fated STS-107 mission. Uh, there's a few first flights here, STS-41D, which was Discovery's first flight, So, and uh, STS-26, one of the, uh, the third cylinder on this thing, which was also the very first uh, return to flight uh, segment, uh, or the return to flight that uh, uh, the uh, Space Shuttle Discovery performed after the Challenger accident. So there is, there's a lot of uh, interesting history on these uh, SRMs. What's also surprising is the fact that on the left booster, uh, towards the very bottom, as well as the forward dome, which is the part on top, on the two bottom, there's a stiffener and an aft dome, as they're called, the two bottom segments. One of them flew on STS-122, but on top of 122, it also flew on STS-107, which was the final flight of the space shuttle Columbia in uh, January of 2003. And on top of that also, below it actually, I should say, the aft dome part was from STS-114, which was the second return-to-flight mission after Columbia, and that was also flown by Discovery. So these boosters are also very interesting, the fact that after they go up, they actually come back down, and when they are reused again for other flights, they are taken back to uh, Utah, which is where they're located. They refurbish them, and they get them back out again for another shuttle launch, which unfortunately we won't get to do. But a bunch of us the other day got to actually go out and take a look at the vehicle on the pad while she was out there for the final time. And uh, I believe three of the four of us got to see it. And I'd love to hear everybody's reactions to going out to the pad and seeing the vehicle, the final vehicle, for the final time. Gina, do you want to start? Yeah, well, I got out to the launch pad last night, probably after 8 p.m., and there was a group that went ahead of us that we had to wait for them to return before I went out there. When I arrived, uh, the xenon cannons had illuminated Atlanta, so it was, uh, I, as much as I was displeased I had to wait around for an hour, I think I got the better view. Uh, the sky had started to darken, the xenons were on, just an incredible contrast of the bright white of the orbiter itself lit up against the bluing to black skies. And um, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome sight. Um, Water's being discharged. There's, you know, the, the orbiter right before launch, as they start with the cryos and activate its fuel cells, it, the orbiter comes alive and it starts to breathe and it's making noises and it's, you know, inhaling and exhaling basically as its tank kind of, they have a controlled, uh, you know, pressurization. It's almost like a retraction and expansion that it's doing and it's almost like it's uh, exhaling and inhaling and it's, it was just an awesome sight. We were able to stand out about 500 yards away from the orbiter and uh, on the crawler way and take as many pictures as we could before they ushered us back on the buses, but um, just truly awesome. Gina, given that this is the last flight, what, what were your thoughts? I mean, you, you're a bit of a veteran. We were here for SDS-132. Uh, we kind of sort of got that view from a different angle. Well, you know, um, some watching Bob Crippen walk away, the pilot of STS-1. You know, I, I remember uh, just being glued to the TV that day, watching as many hours of coverage as I could until it finally launched Columbia with uh, 
John Young as commander and Bob Crippen as pilot on board. And, you know, watching Atlantis last night, I took what photos I could. And I, I just tried to give myself a moment to suck it in. I mean, this is it. You'll never see a space shuttle in a vertical like that ever again. And it, I just, I, I haven't, it hasn't quite hit me yet, but um, I, I tried to soak in what I could last night. Indeed, it's, it's kind of tough to, to think that this, this beautiful vehicle that's sitting out on the pad here is, is going to be soon, soon to be a museum, museum piece around here. Sir, you and I went out there yesterday uh, for RSS Retract, and I, I had seen that before from, from two different angles, but you hadn't seen that at all yet, and I'm just curious to hear what, what your thoughts were. I, I have to admit, it was amazing. At first, I was speechless, and uh, I, I had something in my eye, if you know what I mean, a little bit. But um, basically, it, it, you pull up to the pad, and you see this huge vehicle. I mean, you, you've seen models of it in person here at the Kennedy Space Center and around, and it looks pretty big, you know, lying flat down. But when you see it in a vertical position with all the tanks on it, it is amazing just how large it is when you go up to see it with the brightness of the orange external tank. And when we were there, the wind was blowing, so the flags were going, and there was the, you know, clouds in the sky. And I actually found it really symbolic because it was the, you know, the dark clouds in the sky representing the ominous end of the space shuttle program as the final flight comes about. But there was still a little bit of light shining through of NASA's, you know, ability to use the space shuttle to be such an amazing vehicle and their persistence to continue exploring space afterwards. And I'll step off my poetry box now. I'll, I'll take uh, requests for Shakespeare poems later. <laughs> but it, it was really a spectacular sight, and all there are actually pictures and some information on our blog, which is talkingspaceonline.com slash 135. All right, so uh, what we'll do now is how about we talk a little bit about the mission itself. It's a 12-day mission, and uh, it's supposed to launch today, come back on another symbolic date, which is July 20th, which is the anniversary of Apollo 11's moon landing as well. What a coincidence there, too. And so um, it's 12 days. We'll go to the International Space Station. It's a little different. Um, I actually got to ask Mike uh, Moses about this, and he works on the shuttle. And he was saying that uh, what they'll do a little bit differently this time is they give them extra days since it's, norm it's a six- or seven-person crew load on just four people. So they'll move the uh, docking, which is usually on flight day two, to flight day three. And as well as that, all this, the, the one uh, spacewalk, Instead of putting it on the uh, space shuttle crew, that will be done by the actual crew of the ISS, and they'll be helping out with the intravehicular activity, which is basically helping out inside. And uh, as well, they'll also rotate the station a little bit at the end and get a different angle of it, because normally they do a fly around, they get it with the solar panels dead on. But there's some parts that they normally don't get to see. So what they'll be doing is they'll actually get to look in and see different parts of the station, such as the sides of the solar panels and some of the other trusses or segments that they normally don't get to look at. So for the last time, they're going to get some interesting things with that. And uh, the payload on the mission is really interesting. It's, you know, the Raffaello module, which is a multi-purpose logistics module, but it has some very interesting things about it. And uh, Gene, do you want to go over Raffaello with us a little bit? Yeah, the Raffaello or... as or uh, the multi-purpose uh, logistics module, or MPLM as it's known, uh, it's it's rather big uh, in in the 60-foot uh, 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 payload bay of the shuttle. Its length is about uh, 21 feet. Uh, it has a diameter of about 15 feet, 
Uh, its uh, payload mass at launch is about uh, 25,500 pounds. Uh, its usual payload mass upon return is about uh, 9,500 uh, um, um, uh, pounds. Uh, its empty weight is about uh, 9,865 pounds. And this thing is, is essentially a, a cargo container. Uh, but it was it was packed pretty tight. Uh, everybody thinks this is just simply a, a logistics mission, uh, a delivery for the uh, International Space Station. But this is absolutely totally critical uh, because this goes ahead and buys us some time. Uh, all the supplies on board the uh, multi-purpose logistics module, mainly f- and mainly food, uh, is going to go ahead and make sure that the IS- that the International Space Station is going to be serviced for the next six months. Now this buys uh, some time for the commercial partners to go ahead and get their collective act together and make sure that their systems are robust enough to go ahead and rendezvous and dock with the International Space Station so cargo operations can continue. Uh, and without, without, uh, without this mission, uh, I think they would put the uh, International Space Station in a, in a very bad posture, so this mission is critical. I think it's important to point out that even the unmanned rockets that supply the station, nothing can deliver the load of cargo that the space shuttle can, can deliver. This is 12 tons of cargo that's going in, on orbit, hopefully within an hour. And uh, there's nothing else we have right now, unmanned or not, that, that can carry that. The big difference is, though, with this one, they're actually able to bring up experiments and bring them back down at the same time, and they're able to keep them refrigerated or whatever they need to do to bring them back and not ruin the experiment, which is also pretty helpful. All right, so it is now 10.50 Eastern Daylight Savings Time. You are listening to live launch coverage of the STS-135 mission, the final space shuttle mission ever, with the team of Talking Space right here on Astronomy FM. Again, you're joined by Sawyer Rosenstein, Gene McCulka, Mark Ratterman, and Gina Herlihy from the team of Talking Space. Now, there's more payload, actually, inside besides that. Now, there's one really interesting payload that we actually got to take a look at a demonstration of, and it's called the RRM, the Robotic Refueling Mission. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the robot affectionately known as Rosie? Yeah, Rosie, if uh, everybody's sort of familiar with the cartoon series The Jetsons, uh, Rosie was sort of the maid... And uh, the folks that designed uh, the, uh, uh, this particular box, or this pretty porcupine, as one of the project managers referred, it, referred to it the other day. I forget the gentleman's name right now, but uh, that's what he called it. Um, what this really is, is and, and the best way I, can, I could probably describe it, is sort of a, 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 almost a toy toolbox that uh, a, a child would play. But the thing is, is, is rather big, and the whole purpose of this thing is to go ahead and make sure that uh, refueling a satellite up in orbit is indeed possible. This thing is, is, is just pockmarked with different fueling ports and different size fueling ports for different types of satellites. And the idea is to go ahead and mount the uh, robotic fueling mission uh, onto uh, the International Space Station and take the, uh, the Dexter robotic, robotic arm and try to use Dexter to go ahead and see if it, it can go ahead and connect successfully with each one of these docking ports and go ahead and try to and fuel this and make sure that uh, it can be fueled. So it's, a, it's sort of a precursor to, uh, to going in and uh, trying to, to see if we can refuel satellites. So it's a really, really interesting experiment. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, they, they're not doing it with actual satellites for a while. That is still going to take some time. 
But uh, what they're going to do in the meantime, though, is test it with the actual Rosie. And uh, one thing that was interesting is how it's not going to be very fast. I asked him about how long it'll take. And basically, they showed us a video which was extremely sped up. So they said it could take a, about a week for it to completely refuel and uh, complete a satellite, which would be critical because these satellites, if, say, for example, it's from a TV provider, they still need to broadcast TV to their customers because otherwise they're going to have some angry people who want their money back. So uh, they're trying to work on also making it so that they can uh, broadcast or send or receive data, whatever they need to do, while it's still being refueled. And yeah, the, the interesting thing, too, is, is NASA is going ahead and testing this technology and is going to go ahead and, and make the technology once it's, it's established. Uh, and just basically give it over to commercial entities, not the actual hardware, but they'll go ahead and give the uh, the plans for the technology over to them and kind of sort of see what happens. They might be going ahead and launching a whole new cottage industry where uh, different companies uh, could go ahead and refuel uh, satellites. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the future brings. I mean, these are satellites that could be from the 80s and 90s or by the time it's working from the early 2000s that need to do it. But one thing they were talking about is trying to get them all like in the same location. For example, geosynchronous orbit was, I believe, one of their goals. And how are they actually going to get the satellite to the ISS? I believe it was a, another rocket kind of that would like carry it over in orbit? Well, actually, I think they're not talking about using the ISS, I don't think, as a, as a, as a possible satellite refueling station, are they? I think you may be right on that. We'll have to. Yeah. I, I don't think. I don't think that's the case. I think what they're trying to do is uh, take free-flying satellites and just sort of come up to it with a small robot and use that for uh, use that robotic device for refueling, and that's basically the end game. And if you are a commercial provider and want to go into this business, once this technology is perfected, NASA will be more than happy to go ahead and set you up with uh, with the technology and and see what happens. One other interesting payload that uh, it's not really, it's a mix of bringing up and taking back was a failed pump module on board the ISS from about a year ago. And Gene, if you want to talk a little bit about that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, th this pump module, it's an ammonia pump module. It's used for uh, cooling the, uh, the International Space Station. This pump module failed, uh, I think it was uh, late July. And it was kind of a sort of an exciting night. The crew was about ready to go to bed. And uh, lo and behold, uh, all the alarm bells rang. And uh, they discovered that, indeed, it was this uh, failed satellite, uh, failed uh, pump module. And it actually affected the operations of, of the station. I believe they had to shut down, and Sawyer, check me on this one. I think they had to shut down almost 50% of the, of, the, of the station because this pump module failed, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm not sure on the numbers. Yeah, I, I think it, it, was, it really, really hampered operations. And I believe it took three EVAs uh, to go ahead and correct. Uh, both uh, Doug, astronauts Doug Leelock and uh, Tracy Caldwell-Dyson Dyson performed uh, three unrehearsed uh, EVAs. All they did was just go ahead and send up the instructions, and they performed uh, the EVA admirably uh, to remove this pump module and uh, stow it for uh, later retrieval. What's going to happen on this mission is uh, two uh, of the International Space Station astronauts, uh, Mike Garin and uh, Mike Fossum, are uh, going. Uh, excuse me, Ron Garin and Mike Fossum are going to go ahead and uh, go uh, EVA or extravehicular activity or spacewalk and uh, retrieve that pump module and place it back into uh, Atlantis's cargo bay uh, to bring back to Earth uh, to try to figure out just what went wrong with this thing. And, and again, this is one of the things that the shuttle is very good at doing, is returning hardware from the International Space Station 
and uh, we're going to lose that. But uh, again, the decision to use uh, the International Space Station astronauts as opposed to uh, shuttle astronauts uh, was the fact that, again, you've only got a crew of four on, going on this mission, and uh, it, would, it would essentially overtax uh, the crew's ability to go ahead and do that. And uh, uh, Ron Garan and Mike Fossum had performed DVAs together before, so it was just uh, a match made in heaven. And uh, what's going to happen, I believe, for this single EVA of the mission, uh, Rex Waldheim is going to be the intravehicular officer, or basically the EVA choreogra choreographer, I'm sorry. And uh, he will help uh, uh, Mr. Garen, Mr. Fossum, go ahead and uh, try to uh, retrieve this pump module and place it on board Atlantis. So that, that is the uh, single EVA for this particular mission. So it's interesting actually seeing it not from a shuttle crew. So that was done on the last mission, STS-134. That was the final uh, shuttle EVA, shuttle crew EVA, I should say. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the uh, STS-134 was the uh, final uh, EVA, or they had the final set of EVAs to be formed by a shuttle crew. That's correct, sorry. Just so everybody won't think that I've left, uh, you know, some points to, to consider when we talk about the ammonia pump assembly coming back down. Uh, the shuttle has the capability of doing stuff like that because it's so big. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was here for a Discovery uh, Media Day at Kennedy Space Center and got to go on board Discovery. Got to look over the side of the payload bay, got to cut to slide through the airlock opening and look out in the payload bay and it's big it is tremendously big uh, dimensions I see are 60 feet long and 15 feet in diameter and when you've got that amount of size uh, not as well as weight but you know you can you can send stuff up on rockets that are big but when you've got that amount of size to bring things down that's the thing that's really really special and I'm sure is going to be missed about the shuttle yeah, and yeah, indeed. Mark, you were also down there for uh, some of the uh, MPLM packing, and you've discovered, too, that they really, really packed this thing fairly tight, correct? They did. They actually set a record on the Raffaello that's going up on Atlantis. They set a record for volume packed. It's at 97% capacity by volume. It's about 9,500 pounds of cargo, but it's 97% full. And they turned around their, their typical style of packing which involves they can take the end cone or the end uh, it's not a hatch but the the end of the module opens up they can pack from there but it pretty early in the process they close it up seal it and it's ready for flight on the back side of the module and then they go ahead and continue packing through the forward hatch which is the part that mates with the docking port on the ISS well here they did it differently they started packing it then they closed the forward hatch sealed it ready for flight and they continued packing through that aft end cone. They did this because they wanted to have the maximum capability of late stowage items that would be desired to go up to the ISS via the shuttle. They wanted to have that capability of, of putting the last minute things in as close as they could. They set records for the, uh, having the MPLM ready to go to the pad that shortest amount of time possible before launch. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the details that I heard. They've they modified racks that are in the multi-purpose logistics module to handle more capacity. I think the wax, the racks themselves weigh about 180 pounds, and their normal capacity is around 900. They've boosted that up to 11 and 1200 pounds per storage rack inside the module. They've also added a uh, think of it as a donuts 
shaped ring of cir circumferential uh, stowage cargo bags that are around that aft end cone, that aft closure. And uh, they just really did so many things that were unique. They got to the point where they were coming up with this plan, and they went to the NASA program folks, and they said, we normally purge the module with dry air before flight. Can we skip that? If we do, it gives us some additional capability for late stowage. And NASA gave them the go-ahead. Uh, Boeing is the contractor that does a lot of that work, and it was their team of engineers working with NASA folks that came up with, with what I think is really interesting, that at the very last launch of the program, they're doing things for the first time. It really is great. And uh, once again, just to remind everybody who may be joining us, welcome. You are currently listening to live coverage of the final flight of the Space Shuttle. This is mission STS-135 aboard the Space Shuttle Atlantis, and you are currently with the team of Talking Space here on Astronomy FM, and we thank you all for joining us. We are currently approaching launch time. We are about 25 minutes away, and that's launch minus time, not T minus, because there are two clocks. One of them is a T-minus clock, which has built-in holds in it, which are meant to uh, allow the managers to work any problems that they have, and those are built in. There's one coming up at T-minus nine minutes, and that's about a 45-minute hold, and um, I believe that's already in work now. And on top of that, there's uh, that's the last one, and uh, otherwise they go straight through. But the T-minus does that. The L-minus goes straight down from the top all the way to zero with no stops, which right now is at uh, 24 minutes to launch. Uh, launch is currently scheduled for 11.26 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And uh, also going overhead right now is the shuttle training aircraft, which is a modified Gulfstream aircraft, which is currently doing approach and landing tests into Kennedy Space Center. If there is a need for a return to landing site abort, which means the crew has to come right back to the Kennedy Space Center and land in an emergency. And uh, he's testing that out, and that'll also help him out figure out weather in terms of cloud cover as well as other weather balloons that they launch. So again, this is the final flight of the shuttle, and currently next to where we are here at the Kennedy Space Center is the future vehicle. It is the multi-purpose crew vehicle, formerly and still apparently known as Orion, and we got a chance to take a look at that the other day and ask a couple questions, right? Yeah, indeed. Uh, the uh, interesting thing I thought about the uh, multi-purpose crew vehicle or the Orion, um, well, there was some uh, flipping around of names and things like that, and you know, one one uh, individual really, really got hung up on names, but you know, uh, Lori Garver, associate administrator, used the term Orion as well, so I think that's probably going to end up being the name of the thing. Um, yeah, we got a close-up uh, look of the uh, the test article, which is no more than uh, about, I'd say, sorry, about what, about 50, 60 feet away from us, something like that. If that, it, there's literally one other tent next to us, and then there's this large building with these little flags in front, which inside it is the capsule that was used for a couple tests. Yeah, and uh, there, this is what will essentially be replacing the space shuttle. This vehicle is designed for deep space missions, unlike the orbiter, which is designed for, uh, as the name implies, low Earth orbit. Uh, so it's essentially our first step out of uh, the gravity well, and hopefully that'll be soon. They are hoping to have this vehicle ready to go by, uh, by 2016. Uh, the interesting thing, the question I asked one of the project managers was, uh, had they been talking to the old uh, any of the uh, Apollo folks on it, because the design of the vehicle uh, is harkens back to the Apollo design. Uh, instead of uh, three people, however, this uh, this vehicle will fit four. 
Um, and uh, I just asked if they were looking at the old Apollo data, and they had concurred. They were indeed reviewing the Apollo data and making sure things were going. All right, we are going to pull up the NASA mission audio. Make it ready to do the go no go poll for launch. So that will be coming up soon. Uh, apparently, the people in the tent next to us, uh, the tweet of ten, have a little off. That's okay. Uh, behind us is the tweet of ten, where they selected 150 participants from Twitter out of over a couple thousand to come on out here to the Kennedy Space Center, and they treat them to VIP interviews, access with uh, astronauts and NASA personnel, and also a great view of the launch, similar to those that. Uh, us here at the press get. And uh, right now, again, the only concern that is currently being worked is weather. And uh, that's basically what we're dealing with right now. Again, uh, the timing of it doesn't exactly matter, but it's supposedly 30% uh, go, which is 70% chance of weather prohibiting launch. Although, as we stay here right now, it's going into the mid 80s now as we speak. The wind is very light and variable. And there is actually a bright yellow ball in the sky, I believe we call the sun, and that is finally starting to come out here. Something we haven't seen in the past couple days, because yesterday there were torrential downpours, and there was actually a threat of a lightning strike to the pad, and apparently that was reported at 70,000 amps. Yeah, it wasn't a threat. It actually hit the pad. Uh, they had to actually go ahead and inspect to make sure that there was no lightning damage. They didn't find any, so that's why we're sitting here right now. Uh, awaiting a uh, go-no-go. That is usually at the end of the T-minus nine-minute hold, which again is a 45-minute built-in hold. And this is where we'll find out about launch, because the window today is a 10-minute window. It starts at 11.21 a.m., ends at 11.31 a.m., and that's for today's mission. So we'll see how long that, uh, whether they want to go into the mission, which it's been a, you know, you'd think it'd be a while that they actually use that window. However, on STS-133, <laughs> It was used to, they actually added an unscheduled hold at the T-minus five-minute mark to uh, work on a ground-tracking computer that had malfunctioned. The range computer was read until about two or three seconds right before launch for 133. Uh, currently, they're watching clouds at the 12,000 feet level, so they're concerned about, obviously, the moment of launch and uh, for a window thereafter to allow for the shuttle to return. And it looks like something is potentially building out there. They're not exactly sure, but they're watching those clouds at the 12,000 feet level right now. Well, when it comes to timing, actually, they're getting really close to launch. Again, launch is scheduled for, uh, that's 11.26 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time, which is 15.26 UTC for those of us who use universal time across seas. And we welcome everybody again who's joining us here for live launch coverage coverage of the final space shuttle mission STS-135 with the team of Talking Space. Once again, if you're just joining us here from the top of the hour a couple of minutes ago, members of the team who are with me here is Gene McCulka, Gina Hurley, and Mark Ratterman, all from Talking Space. And again, we've been keeping a blog of what's been going on lately. And if you want to check out some of the events that we got to uh, look at, and we'll be posting more later, uh, you can check out www.talkingspaceonline.com slash one. For STS-135. Again, what you're hearing in the background now is mission audio from George Diller, who is the public affairs officer for NASA for the beginning of the mission. And coverage is currently at the Kennedy Space Center and remains there until the shuttle clears the tower, which at that point is still is already traveling at 100 miles an hour as it clears the tower, just those couple feet.
Yeah, indeed, Sawyer. And uh, at the uh, the cleared the tower point, that means uh, it, it's just simply a, a point in space where uh, Houston will go ahead and take over the mission. And I believe the uh, public affairs officer who will be calling the flight will be uh, Rob Navis, and he is uh, quite uh, quite a genius. So uh, we'll be listening to him after uh, after the flight after uh, uh, the center. At T-minus nine minutes, and holding is the shuttle launch control. All right, and again, everything is looking good so far. Yeah, so here too, I'm seeing breaks in the sky here, so we'll, we'll just have to see. As uh, uh, Mike Moses said the other day during one of the uh, uh, pre-launch uh, countdown briefings, uh, he indicated that uh, all he needs is a 20-mile radius around the launch site and you can punch the hole you punch a hole through uh, through this so uh, we'll see what happens hopefully this uh, this stuff all goes away all right so we'll hope that that launches go and uh, if not here's the contingency plans for the next couple of days on Saturday which is tomorrow it is most likely at this point they figured with tanking if it was four hours to go to launch uh, before that if they scrubbed it which thankfully they didn't uh, then they would go Saturday but most likely now it looks like if this is again if it does not go on uh, Saturday or today. It will go on Sunday, which the updated weather forecast from today is that Sunday's weather would be a 50% chance of go. And uh, so that's 50% chance, which is a little bit better. Again, the same concerns with the clouds and rain within the area. And uh, that would be a little bit earlier in the day as well. And the only other concern would be some of the alternate landing sites. Everything in the U.S. is fine. Two of their other alternate sites have concerns with their weather, but there is one that is still okay, and that's all they need. And I believe that's either Zaragoza or Marone, which are both located in Spain. Yes. Uh, yeah, Sawyer, too. Uh, another thing is that if they don't get uh, the vehicle off on Sunday, I believe uh, Atlantis loses the range and has to go ahead and uh, uh, bow to a, uh, a Delta vehicle that's carrying an, a military GPS satellite, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that would be the Delta Four, which uh, is currently over at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station side of the Cape here, and that is poised for launch next week with the GPS satellite. And so we are getting really close to launch. Again, you are with the team of Talking Space. We are going to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to take a quick break shortly. After we come back, we will get ready for launch and some more items along those lines. So here's what's going to happen. We will have launch coming to you at 11.26, and we will also be narrating the entire climb uphill as it goes up, and we'll let you know what's going on, and uh, we hope that uh, you'll be back with us in a short break. Uh, you are listening to live coverage here with the team of Talking Space on Astronomy FM, and we thank you very much for joining us. Hi, this is Michael Forrester at AFM Radio Mission Control. You are listening to live coverage of the Space Shuttle Atlantis, the final shuttle mission. We're going to take a short break to give our Talking Space crew a moment to catch their breath. We'll be back in a couple of minutes joining our worldwide network of broadcast stations. This is the Voice of Astronomy, broadcasting live. Thanks for listening. This is AFM Radio. AFM.